Welcome to the Scaling New Heights podcast, a program for accountants and bookkeepers who seek to scale new heights in their practices and guide their clients to scale new heights in their businesses. My name is Joe Woodard, and I'm joined today by Caleb Jenkins, leader of the Outsourced Tax Planning and Business Accounting Services team at RLJ Financial Services, and Chris Farrell, CEO of Lysio. Now, we're in the middle of a multi-part practice management series where we're focusing on people, process, systems, product, and pricing. And today's episode is all about people. So, let's get started with a question for Caleb. And Caleb, I want to touch on three challenges for firms when it comes to people. There's hiring, management, and retention. So when it comes to your hiring strategy, how do you put a strategy together? And especially in the environment we're in right now, what are your considerations about virtualization of employees, hiring people outside of your local area? Yeah, so thanks, Joe. It's great to be back with all of you again. So we've always hired locally. Um, We're not against virtual. We just haven't made that transition yet due to our culture and our environments as a team. Part of that culture is our faith, building on our family, trust together, integrity, and honesty are part of our culture values. We generally hire younger candidates as part of our hiring strategy and start them at entry-level positions in our firm and then advance them to more responsibilities later on. Well, Caleb, my big takeaway from that is values-driven hiring. Now, and just for some context for our listeners who don't know you as well as I do, you're in what I would call the Brethren community, and you are in an agrarian community of almond farmers, and your family owns almond farms. And so if people kind of go back and listen to your segment with that understanding of the culture that you're in and the values that you have, but whatever your culture and whatever your values as you're listening to this podcast, make sure that they inform your decision around hiring. That is so key. Now, I want to turn to Chris right now. Chris is going to give us a different perspective. He's a developer. He's the CEO of Lysio, and he hires a tremendous number of resources in a wide range of roles, and he's been doing it for decades. So, Chris, talk a little bit about your hiring strategies over at Lysio. Thanks, Joe. We, um, we employ, as you know, locally, virtually, and internationally. And we're looking really to match our hiring strategy with our business. So we're looking to match time zones to support our clients. We're looking to make sure the labor costs are right. And obviously, we like to have everybody together if we can. But as you say, in spring 2020, a lot of things have changed. So there's this concept of work anywhere. I think that's going to be very attractive to a lot of great employees as well. So we're testing that. So for us, it's a matter of learning what works for us for the various jobs we have in the company. And those differ between sales, support, et cetera. So once we've hired, or once we've identified a hiring need, then it's gonna come down to whom we hire and when we hire them. So the who part is easy. Uh, we view hiring very much as a team game. We're looking for buy-in from everyone across the company. We really want fit. And that goes back to your comment before on culture. So we're gonna keep on working on that as a team until we find consensus. And there are very few exceptions to that rule. The second piece really is when to hire somebody. And that can be a little bit contentious because everybody wants to have more people to share the burden, share the load, right? So a lot of jobs we view in the company are 
really capacity-based, so sales, service, et cetera. So we put together a model for that. You know, each person should be able to handle so much work. So what we do is we set the expectation early. And so people know when we should make the next hiring call based on the capacity model. For example, one person should be able to handle, let's say in an accounting firm, about 10 clients. So if we wanna hire somebody and our average right now is seven clients per person, we kind of know we shouldn't be necessarily be looking at it unless our model is wrong. And, and so what we'll do is if they've identified a hiring need from the bottom up, we'll go back, check it against the capacity model. If it doesn't agree, we'll adjust the capacity model or better yet, we'll figure out what's broken in the system because that's probably might identify something else in the organization. So the, those are a couple of things we look at when we're hiring. And you know what, I really like uh, what you said about, about the defining the roles. You get the role, then you can define the capacity. And, and I've always said to folks, the biggest mistake people make is they build their organization around the people that are currently in the organization to figure out what roles they need to fill. And you don't, you start with roles as if there were no people in the company, then you decide who in the company is already in multiple roles within the company. And they almost always are in at least two. And that's not a bad thing, right? It just means you may not have a, a need for a full-time role, but it could also help you to focus those roles and responsibilities. If somebody's supposed to be managing 10 accounts and they're only managing seven, it could be that you have them in too many boxes on the org chart. And maybe you need to kind of move some of those boxes around a little bit. So that's a great way now to transition into the strategy of how. We talked a little bit about the, the why of, of, of hiring and the what of hiring, but, but let's get to the ground now. What are the hiring tactics? And Chris, I want to stay on you for a little bit. Do you have any tips and tricks for everybody listening in? I've got four for you, Joe, four, uh, four tips and tricks. So first, um, we use Indeed. We think that's a great place to find talent pretty much anywhere in the country. And the talent pool there tends to be really tech savvy, uh, more so than some other places. So that's just an easy one. Uh, second, we're looking to add some detailed requests, some detailed requests each job posting. So what, am I, what I mean by that is you have some people out there who are applying literally to hundreds of jobs a day, and that's just applicant spam, right? And so what we wanna do is provide them with some simple guidance that allow us to filter out spam applicants from everybody else who's good. And so we'll ask them, for example, to provide maybe a sentence or two about why they're applying. Another thing we might do is to make sure that they submit their application in PDF form. We don't wanna open a, a docx, right? It might have a virus in it. So we put some little tiny things in there, not too burdensome, but is a good first filter. The third thing we do, uh, particularly for younger hires, and I'm a, a big believer in hiring candidates uh, with high GPAs, right? It's because we're looking for a leading indicator. It's not a perfect indicator, but it's a leading indicator um, that these people have good habits, right? So it's easier to train people how to do the work we want them to do rather to, than it is to retrain their core habits. So GPAs are leading indicators there. And then lastly, um, we are always looking to interview at least three candidates. That gives our team a chance to see, I'm not talking about just screen three candidates, really interview them. And that gives our, our team a chance to compare and contrast several people before we make a hiring decision that's gonna be with us for a long time. To add to what Chris said is we need to think about the role and the responsibilities of the position we're trying to fill before we start the hiring process. We need to fit the person to the role. And one of the things on the person, just to, to focus there a little bit, is we look for candidates that have characteristics of adaptiveness to changing environments. Our world is changing fast, and if they can't change with our world, they're probably not a good fit. And the other thing is 
think about the value of the candidates that you're marketing for because you will get what you put into it in a, in a large scale. So if you have bad grammar on your job postings, you're generally going to breed candidates that have bad grammar. Or another example is if you put poor styling or design on your job postings, you're generally going to breed candidates that accept poor design. Another thing is if you want somebody to be responsive as a team member, you need to be responsive up front and provide clarity as soon as you receive a lead. If you wait 24 hours or 48 hours or something to respond, you're telling them that's what you accept as a team member. Uh, the other thing is think about your hiring process, your interview process. Is it fun and engaging or is it dry and boring? Uh, if it's dry and boring, you're immediately gonna get any of the good candidates that you're looking for that's gonna self-select themselves out of the process. So we use personality and leadership testing in the hiring process. Very crucial again to go back to the roles and responsibilities because those fit together extremely well. We use the Synergist test uh, and the DISC test to, to help match that, those results to the roles and responsibilities. Tactics then for actually how do we get uh, candidates. Uh, we send out email newsletters to our existing clients. That we found pretty good because that we, we filter within our existing environment. That, that can be pretty helpful, again, from that culture mindset. We then secondarily ask around in our local communities, our church, business groups, et cetera. Again, those are people that fit our existing mold, uh, our culture values. But then we also post on our website, so that, again, feeds our, our people coming to us, Facebook, so other social media, and Indeed, like Chris said. And Indeed's been one of the very good places. The only problem I have with that is it, there's no cultural filter on the Indeed postings. I love how you let the role inform the hire, rather than hiring the person and then trying to carve out a role that fits. Sometimes the perfect is, a person's a great candidate. We just really want this person based on reputation or experience to be a member of the team and then we rationalize how they would fit in. That's always a backward model. Let the role determine the hire and make sure it's a perfect fit for the role for your firm and then get the best candidate possible. Now, Chris, coming back around to you, I think when you're dealing with, indeed, you're probably dealing with dozens of resumes and then you're trying to filter that down somehow to around three candidates. And I can only assume that as with Caleb, the role is informing it and also your values and your culture are informing the decision. I'll tell you, Joe, <clears throat> this is one of the big things about what's happening right now with remote work and hiring. Literally what we're doing is we're putting out ads in multiple, and you can do this on for free on Indeed, by the way, we're, we're spamming cities. And so you'll see ads for our jobs literally in Texas, in Georgia, in Washington, in California, et cetera. And for every hire we make, we just hired somebody, um, last week we went through at least a thousand resumes but then we conducted at least a thousand 20. so i was understating when i yeah. said a few hundred yeah yeah you're, you're looking you have an opportunity if you're, gonna, if you're gonna if you can't hire anywhere you might as well take advantage of it right and really take it abroad take a look at a broad pool yeah then we bring somebody in to your point joe you really want to make sure you're hiring 
for the actual job, not trying to force fit somebody, that's where you're going to want to get enough candidates in front of your team. Because if you view hiring as a team process, you have to have enough candidates in there to get that contrast to find the right match. Because you only look at one person, you're going to find a lot of reasons to like that person. If you look at five, 10 people, you're going to start to really hone in on what you want. And the team will see the contrast and the differences across culture, ability, et cetera. So, um, and then I'm just going to finish out this hiring topic by saying we do something very, very interesting over here at Woodard. I've only heard of one other company that does this. So you can tell me if you do, but I never see a candidate until the final interview and I never see more than three candidates. So we might have, uh, you know, 30 or 40 resumes in our situation. We go through that pairs down to about 10 interviews, three get selected for my interview and the criteria for me to get in front of them as the owner of the company is all three must be hireable candidates. So my team has filtered them out to any one of these three was fine. And then I'm not doing any of the listening. I don't ask the questions about sell me this pen or, you know, why is your favorite color blue, all that stuff. All the assessments have been done and I've read the entire profile. So I know more about that person than, than probably their spouse at that point from the disc assessments and everything else we're doing. I walk in the room already knowing them. I have one purpose in that room and that is to cast the vision of the company, which in our case is to transform small business through small business advisors. Then I cast the mission, educate, provide resources, build communities. And then I talk about our driving purpose to empower small business advisors. And I, and I don't do it that succinctly. I really make it real. And I tell some stories about some of the advisors in our community and what they do to transform small business. And I tell my own childhood stories of my struggling mom and pop that I was raised in and that construction company and, and how an advisor could have made a big difference on our lives and in our income and our family. And sometimes people will cry from, from the, the, the vision that I cast. Now, crying is not a, a, a prerequisite to getting the job, but sometimes it will invoke tears. But sometimes a person will just stare at me like, what in the world does this have to do with the fact that I'm going to get a paycheck? And then I was like, found you. You're out of here, right? Um, you may be great for somebody else, but you're not passionate about this company's vision, mission, and purpose. So big recommendation I'd make to, to everybody listening in. Okay, now hiring is just the first step. Once you get to the person in the company, you need to make sure that you empower them and equip them to perform at their best. So now it comes down to managing people. And how do you, Caleb, manage your teams? Now, this is a reminder to the listener audience, anytime Caleb speaks is the voice of a fellow practitioner. So very relevant to you guys. How do you manage your team? Yes. Yeah, so in regards to time, there's, there's two different views between structured versus agile. In our case, a lot of our time is very agile. So a lot of us manage our own schedules. So we've empowered our team to do that, uh, to keep up. But then we follow through later by making sure that based on our visibility into our dashboards and et cetera, that the work is actually being done. And so, and then we follow through with that. And what about your, your values proposition? You've been coming back to that with so many things with hiring and, and also with even roles and responsibilities and team culture. So does that inform the way that you maintain productivity? There, there's a couple of things on productivity. For somebody to be productive, they have to feel valued. And, and so we have a pretty strong team atmosphere, which we're, we're completely open about topics that sometimes are taboo topics, 
faith, uh, family, friends, work. That that's that's free game uh, in our discussions. The other thing is um, shifting a little bit to uh, staying up to date with changes in the ecosystem of of apps and QuickBooks and everything that's happening. We need to be laser focused and sharp on what's happening so that we can minimize the amount of things that we're doing over and over and over repetitiveness so that we can free ourselves up to do what we are really valuable at doing. Third thing is I would say we need to be focused and stay focused on what needs to be accomplished next. And that next thing is what needs to be fixed now. And then we can come back later and recycle that again and again. We do this in, in broader view of our vision, a bigger perspective, but we can't let the vision uh, just bury ourselves into actually accomplishing something right now. All right, what about you, Chris? Uh, how do you maximize productivity? We are always trying to figure out what our goals are and how to get there, right? So what if you have a goal in terms of where you want to be productivity wise or client service wise, et cetera, you want to set strong goals around it. So we talked earlier about a capacity model. Maybe we have one team member per 10 clients. Maybe we have a goal as a firm to get to one person per 20 clients, right? So what you want to do is you want to cast something out there that's going to allow you to make progress towards where you want to be. So we use smart goals for that. If you haven't used smart goals, highly, highly recommend them. They're specific, measurable, achievable, relevant to the business and they're time bound. So always use a smart goal. You can't just have a goal, hey, get to one to 20 and not explain anything around it. You have to have a goal in mind. What's the timing? Can we do it, et cetera? And you start to work backward from there. So once you have those smart goals out in the water, <clears throat> the next thing you wanna do is you really wanna work on making sure that everybody is checking in, showing whether or not we're getting, actually attaining progress and have traction toward that goal. So have a cadence, have a review cadence. It can be weekly, it can be monthly, it can be biweekly, whatever that is. And then make sure the team members, managers, et cetera, are checking in frequently to see if anything is getting stuck in the process, right? If you're doing that, you should be in pretty good shape to make sure you're mar marching to goal. And if you as a leader need to intervene, assist people, tear down barriers, et cetera, you can do it early enough in process to make sure you're not getting surprised. And then, um, you know, one of the th big, big elements of productivity for us is, is a couple of things, a, a task management system that is highly collaborative and universally accessible. So that's big for us. And I know that you guys touched on some of that. We use HubSpot for that, but prior to using HubSpot for that, there are a couple of other tools that may be a little bit more right at your fingertips, a little bit less costly. If you're an Office 365 subscriber, uh, you have a tool called Planner you're already paying for, you just didn't know it, and it's out there in the Office 365 suite. You could give, you could give that a start. And then uh, Google Tasks are shareable, so you can create some visibility that way just to get yourself off, off the ground. But I think, Caleb, you mentioned in our first part of this series when we are talking about process, don't underestimate the power of a spreadsheet. You run your entire standardized process for your firm. If you missed that episode, you can go back and catch it, first part of the series, on a Google Sheet. It works. It's collaborative. It's universally accessible to your entire firm, and it, it keeps everything organized. It's a great, great place to start. All right. Now, when it comes to tasks, that's a great way to transition into delegation, because what are you putting into a system like that? And what are people doing when they're productive? They're doing something you've handed them to do, right? So. Chris, tell us about the size of your team first, and then how do you delegate, especially with the majority of your team virtual? Sure thing, Joe. I think when we think about delegation internally, 
Um, we're managing only about 30 people right now inside Alicio, so not a huge team. But when we think about how we're going to delegate across all the functions, et cetera, I have a general rule of thumb with regard to management bandwidth. And that is you need a manager for about every eight employees you have in the firm. If you give somebody more people to manage than that, it's, it's not going to work. If you give somebody eight people to manage and give them a full load of work, that's not going to work either, right? So if you got somebody in the, in the company who's got four people reporting to them, expect that to be about half their time, right? And, and that's, that's where you start. In terms of delegation itself, my top recommendation is this. Delegate at the right level. That's the most important thing you're going to do. It's going to keep your employees really happy. It's going to keep your stress level in check. So here's how we do it. On one side of the spectrum, if you have an item that's really high risk and you are certain how to handle it, meaning it's a height certainty item, then make the decision yourself and you're going to want to direct your staff, right? If it's on the other end of the spectrum, which is low risk to the firm, and you're not really necessarily sure how it should be done, then delegate the item fully. If the item falls in between, and most of them will, what you're going to want to do is collaborate with your team on the really important items that you're less certain about, you know, keep on reviewing. And what you want to do is keep on reviewing lower risk items that you are certain about. So once your team has enough task relevant maturity and you trust them to take care of everything, then you can delegate even more. So that model has been really effective for us because what you're doing is you're creating a sense of real ownership around a lot of items, right? Without risking your business and you're providing a lot of room to grow, right? And so that's really essential in our world for building the next generation of leaders and managers. And to translate that into an accounting world, I would say that you manage the accounts and then by extension, you manage the people who are producing those accounts. And then that way it connects just what you said, Chris, together. The outcome is inseparable from the performer. And that allows me to put what we call over here, what are the bump the lamp element? Uh, that's a Disney Institute term bump the lamp, and I don't have time to get into the entire story, but if you will Google Disney Institute bump the lamp, I bet you'll find it. But it just means that extra degree of excellence that separates you from the person next to you. So what about you, Caleb? Let's hear the practitioner's voice um, on delegation. Do you have a, a rule of thumb for the amount of time you'd ideally spend managing versus doing? I'm probably not the best candidate to talk on this because I, I haven't learned the art of delegating yet like I should. Everything that Chris just mentioned is is crucially relevant that I, I need to learn better on myself. Um, so I, I don't I don't necessarily have the answer. I, I know I spend way too much time right now doing and not near enough time delegating. Okay, but since you recognize that, and thanks for the transparency, what are the signs that are telling you that you're over or under delegating? Yeah, so for under delegating, I know when I'm getting behind on my emails and messages and just basic tasks that I'm getting behind and I'm not delegating enough. Um, those are just simple tasks and those should be something that I should be able to relatively clear up every day and, and move through and, and manage based on a um, a model of, of doing the things that are relevant to get done right now. Uh, the over delegation is when I, I feel like when it's, my team gets burdened or stressed or burnt out specifically with no, with a lack of direction and purpose in what they're doing. So if I'm just always giving everyone, just forwarding an email to somebody with a task and saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I'm losing the aspect of the responsibility 
that comes with that. So I know, Joe, what, Joe, you've got a really good quote to delegate responsibilities, not the individual tasks themselves. I am so glad you brought that up. You delegate tasks when you have to. You delegate responsibilities, or you could say delegate outcomes, or ultimately you can say delegate authority. You do that whenever you can, meaning whenever the team member is responsible enough to generate outcomes to take on that level of authority. And this inverts the model, says Hunter in his Servant Leadership book, where once the outcome is now owned by someone who is employed by my company and not by me as the owner or as the employer, once that team member owns the outcome, it is my job to serve them with my unique resources, the things only I can do. So in the inverted model, they are delegating tasks to me. They're delegating to me those things that only I can do so that I can assist them in generating their outcome. And once you accomplish that level of production, your firm is going to scale and your firm is going to have high levels of consistent quality and innovation. And that's a great way now to turn our conversation to quality assurance. As soon as you are delegating outcomes and responsibilities, you're measuring the right thing on the part of a person's performance, not their billable versus non-billable time, not their overall productions, not their revenue generated, and those are important metrics. But to measure what matters now, you must measure the quality of the outcome that that team member produced. And that will lead to a wide range of other management implications. So Caleb, I'm gonna stick with you. As a practitioner, what is your quality assurance process and strategy? Yeah, so on this for us, I, I feel like it goes back to right after the hiring phase. And even in that hiring phase a little bit is we need to be dumping a ton of quality education, spending time working with them to make sure that they're up to speed with who we are, what we do and how we do it. And that is hard because we've got to divide our attention then between do we actually do our work or do we help get that person up to speed so they can help us do that work too. Do I do it myself or do I spend time educating? But if you invest that amount of time on the front side and give quality education, it saves a lot of frustration down the road. Well, it does, Caleb. And then, of course, review cycles are really important. And I know that you run those review cycles in your practice and you sort of let people wean themselves off of review or not totally, but you review them less as uh, they do more work with consistent quality. But I know a lot of leaders struggle where they only provide feedback when that feedback is addressing a problem and not enough where they're praising people when they do things well. Even I, I struggle with that aspect too, is, is giving praise when, when, they, when they're doing well, but then provide encouragement where the outcomes fall short. And that's key. Don't, don't criticize them for where they failed provide encouragement where they need to do better. And I think they will rise to the occasion and they will follow through and do better than they ever did before. So Chris, what about you? How do you maintain quality assurance? Because uh, in a software company, that's, it can be a moving target. 
Absolutely. So for us, quality cannot be subjective. Quality has to be objective, right? And with that in mind, you can't improve what you don't measure. So if we go back to the model, the core model for us is SMART goals. You take the S, the M, and the T out of SMART goals, specific, measurable, and timely. So you start there. Then we start to look at leading indicators. Did we start on time? What are our checkpoint reviews telling us? What are we learning in our final review of the work? And if a customer is involved, let's ask for feedback as well. That's ultimately the goal. Are we, how well are we doing? That's a more objective evaluation than anything we're going to have internally. So if we miss on any of those things, if we don't meet our expectations, we're starting to dig into the details, right? We want to understand and make corrections in the process as we go. So that's our quality feedback loop. Involve the customer, you know, set the goals, measure everything, and then obviously interim checkpoints so you don't get surprised. Now, Caleb, some of that doesn't necessarily translate into an accounting firm in the same way. I mean, because we are talking an apple and an orange here between software and accountancy. So, so with kind of kind of apply that measurement standard of Chris to your firm. Yes. Yeah, so I would say a lot of accountants measure too many things without the right focus. So uh, we, we need to measure things, but it can be taken way too far. We need to measure the right things. And that can only be a couple of items done really well. Uh, too many measurements gets in the way of actually accomplishing our vision, mission, and purpose of, of our business. So I tend to agree with Ron Baker and Patrick Lencioni that intuition is a better indicator than just mere measurements. Measurements are key, but they should be a source of verification to our intuition as a business. Yep. And I'm going to come back to the apple and orange. Uh, and I've done both. I've done software development and low-code platforms, and I have done service work. And I would say that it's a broad stroke measurement on service work. Sometimes even a net promoter can get you by. And then when I'm doing programming work, I am measuring every tiny little stroke. Um, so that's great that we see the contrast from the two different models. And I would say for our listening audience that are mostly service providers in here, if you're doing implementation work, measure more intensely. If you're doing cyclical and repeatable work, measure more broadly, like Caleb was, was saying. So now let's get into some common mistakes here. So Chris, what are the most common mistakes you see managers make? I think the number one thing is a lot of managers, particularly younger ones, are going to get pent up. And that means that they're providing feedback, they're being encouraging, but eventually they get frustrated. And when they get frustrated, that tends to start to do the things that break the culture down. And so there has to be an escape valve all the way through this. So the early thing to do is to create an expectation that work will be reviewed and feedback will be given. It's one of those things where they know that if they know I'm reviewing the work, they haven't, there's, uh, there's a possibility that I'm, they're going to get direct feedback from me or from Caleb, right? And so going back to the old Reagan days, trust, but verify, right? And so once we're doing that, and once people know that that's part of our culture, that the review part is part of our culture, it's building a, you know, really an environment or a fabric where people are expecting feedback and people are going to learn and know what our standard of performance is. And we're going to reinforce that consistently in quarterly or semi-annual reviews, whatever your review cadence is. And you have to have a review cadence that ha includes a written assessment of how things are going. It's not necessarily, you know, um, a euphemistically a sandwich, it's going to be, you know, really just very, very plain language of how they're actually doing, right? And that takes the ambiguity 
If you ever see an employee looking over their shoulder, how am I doing? I don't really know. I'm uncertain. You want to take the ambiguity away from them. So what we do is we use a 3-3-1 format. It's what we call it. It's basically structured to include three things that are going well, three opportunities for improvement, and the one thing the employee needs to work on. That way, the structure always has essentially an opportunity for criticism built in. People are going to expect it. They're not going to expect to have seven things that are all glowing. They're expecting to have a balanced scorecard um, that covers everything that they're doing. And we do it all on one page. Um, it creates predictability for the staff. It creates predictability for the manager. And it gets the discussion going um, freely. Once you have that, you shouldn't have people getting pent up. Your culture should be open and transparent. People know where they stand. Off you go. Well, thank you for that, Chris. And Caleb, you had an interesting process going when you started at the firm, which of course your father owns. Can you tell us a little bit about how he handled the mixture of review and training to get you up to speed on tax prep? So when I got started, I, I input the tax returns and et cetera. We reviewed them together, almost every single one. And we, we went through it. And when I had a mistake, I knew it. I knew what I needed to do to fix it. And I, I had education on what to improve. Uh, that's, it's very key to fixing those issues going forward instead of just fixing it short term, get it done fast, get it out the door but without any aspect of, of learning and, and, and fixing those problems before they ever arise. Well, and I think that is key to the professional development of the people in your firm. And it worked out for you because not only did you stay in the profession as one of the youngest people that I've met in the profession, but you also decided to double down on that. You became an enrolled agent. You're now a leader within the firm. So it will pay off long-term if you make the investment short-term in quality assurance and quality control long-term in greater team member retention. And that takes us to the final topic where we're dealing with the management of people in our practices, retention. And I'm gonna stay on you, Caleb. High turnover in the accounting community as a whole. What is your strategy for retaining good professionals? Yes, yeah, so there's there's three different areas of retention that I, that I think we want to focus on here, which is culture, honesty, and compensation. So on the culture aspect, uh, culture for us is everything in hiring and retaining the team members and customers that we want. Uh, and customers is key there too. Think about people not only as your team internally, but your team externally, which is your customers and your vendors. The second area is honesty. Honesty provides an opportunity for growth for both parties. Uh, so but bilaterally between the manager and, and their direct report or whatever, honesty leads to trust, which leads to vulnerability, and that leads to healthy conflict which the outcome of that is that ideas and people matter enough to fight for the best in the outcome. There's that then compensation as a third part of the retention strategy needs to be based on the role and a number of KPIs related to that role, such as the profitability that person provides, uh, the quantity of work that that person completes, the timeliness, of the tasks that they do, 
the amount of ideas that they generate for your team or your firm, the referrals to your company for that they provide, and culture contribution. So that's a ton of little KPIs there. But I, one of those that I think is overlooked a lot is the idea generation piece. So if somebody brings a good idea to the table, are they compensated for it? I never even thought about that before. That's a good point. Yeah. So Chris, what about you uh, on the retention side? What's your strategy? You're also in a high turnover category. Everybody is these days, aren't they? <laughs> well, these so, days, yes, but even normally, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So really when we think about retention, we obviously want to tie it all to achievement. We're not saving lives necessarily, right? What we are doing is we show up to work and we want to build something, right? Our brains are going to reward us with dopamine when we hit a goal. So we have a big vision where we want to be over a span of years, right? But on a smaller scale, every day when we come to work, what we want to do is have really good success you know, hit the smart goals we've put out for ourselves in small bites and then have great interactions, have great interactions internally because we've got the right culture, have great interactions with our clients because good interactions with your clients beget more get good interactions, right? You ever gotten off to on the wrong foot with a client? It's really, really hard to claw back. So you're constantly wanting to get rewards around that. So our motto is, is really simple. You know, be great to clients. You're, you're going to get, you're going to reap a dividend for that for years to come. Once we've done that, then we need to reward our people. And we want to be predictable in that regard as well. So you can be subjective with regard to compensation or you can be objective. If you're subjective, it leaves a lot of stuff to be negotiated between an employee and a manager. And I, you know, there's a lot of talk right now with regard to gender bias, with regard to all sorts of biases. We want to get that stuff out of the water. So we prefer to be a little bit more transparent. Go ahead and take a look at what market is. Don't be afraid to share that with anybody on your team. And basically people use, you guys know this already, but there are salary bands. We pay at the 50th percent of market. Do we pay at the 75th percent of market? Do we pay the 25th percent of market? It's okay. Know where you are, know where you stand, build an environment that's a little more transparent around that because people are going to talk about it anyway. You know, people are going to share their salaries over lunch one day. There's not a lot you can do about that. So as long as people know where they stand relative to market and what your plan is as a company, you've made it objective and you've taken a lot of this other stuff out of the water. You've saved yourself the headache. So that's kind of what we do as a, uh, as a structure to keep people you know, happy and in the know. I, I agree completely. People want purpose. They want to know that they're with a company that's headed in a direction and they want to know that that company's lined up with their own personal values and vision statement. And this is the ultimate factor in retention, more so than compensation, more so than market factors, more so than competitive influences, more so than location, is that I believe I am contributing to my advancement, to the advancement of the company, and to the advancement of a company's vision that I am in alignment around. So thank you, Chris, and thank you, Caleb, and I look forward to our next conversation with you in the next segment of our practice management series. I want to thank everyone who tuned in for tuning in to today's podcast and our conversation with Chris and Caleb. For more information about today's episode, to explore other episodes in this podcast series, or to learn more about our annual conference, visit woodard.com. That's W-O-O-D-A-R-D.com. As always, we encourage you to stay tuned, stay connected, never stop learning and scale new heights.